0: This is Paris. This is Chuck D. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR, Plainfield. You know what I mean? We gonna change the system. Think about it. Right now. And uh, that's the way it was. That's the way it is. It's always
1: changing and it is always the same. The same. How's that for Psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, 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 this is a special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I'm a traveler. A wanderer. And it's always changing and it is always the same. The same. The, same.
0: Yo, 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 take it out.
1: the world is listening. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. All the but suddenly something seems to have happened. Suddenly something seems to have happened. I want everybody to understand. this. I
0: don't understand. I don't understand. There are a lot of things we don't
1: understand either. What did you expect to find? What did you expect? What's going to be our future? It's your responsibility to do something about it. Well, I, uh, I have the key in my hand. All I have to find is the lock, the lock, the lock, the lock.
0: Do you have anything to say? I have this to say something very important
1: to say to you, please. I, I think he wants to be heard. That's all. A... Okay, let's hear you. I'm talking about my life. I can't seem to get that through to you. That through to you. I'm not just talking about one person. I'm talking about everybody. everybody, everybody. What, what, what do you mean?
0: You know what I'm talking about. How do you like that?
1: The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves.
0: Correct, 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 correct. And good luck. In the form of energy, streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems. In the form of energy, all of our sensory and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like, what it feels like, and what it sounds like, it into this enormous which creates information in the form of energy streams in simultaneously through all of our systems in the form of energy all of our and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like what it feels like and what it sounds like it explodes into this technical interview
1: All the dangers which you have feared are unnecessary productions of your own mind. Whether you experience heaven or hell, remember that it is your mind which creates life.
0: We care about your world. i don't
1: know it's good but i don't know how happy i'll be well here we are again and good morning and welcome to the magical mystery tour my guest today is ray johnson they are a social worker somatic movement therapist scholar activist working at the intersections of embodiment and social justice ray's approach to embodied activism has been shaped by decades of frontline work with street youth, women in addiction recovery, psychiatric survivors, and members of the queer community. Since completing their doctoral studies, Ray has held academic positions in several somatic psychology programs, including at Naropa University and Pacifica Graduate Institute. They currently teach somatic psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and they're the author of Embodied Social Justice. And most recently, and the book that we'll be talking about is Embodied Activism Engaging the Body to Cultivate Liberation, Justice, and Authentic Connection, a Practical Handbook for Transformative Social Change. So, Ray, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, I thought we could begin by having you read Patterns in the Flesh. I have
0: it all queued up. You and I are thinking exactly along the same lines. (laughs) (laughs) This is a poem that I wrote that's designed to evoke some of the ideas that are contained within the Embodied Activism book and my approach to embodied activism, and it's called Patterns in the Flesh. Many of us, are in the kind of existential pain that Douglas Adams once described as the long, dark tea time of the soul. Icebergs melt and wildfires blaze, violence escalates, viruses replicate. Lifelong activists for social and environmental justice speak in terms of hospice care for the species and the planet. With the world simultaneously burning and drowning, it might seem like nothing we do will matter very much in the end. But what if nothing could be further from the truth? What if it's not only what matters in the end, but what matters in the spacious now, here, in the short arc of history? Not just the what, but the how, not just the big picture, but noticing that the big picture is created by patterns on the small scale in the warmth of our
1: flesh. I love that. Thank you. And I especially love that in the context of the notion of activism, because I've always felt very ambivalent about the way I see social activism playing out in this country and, mm-hmm. and feeling like something, something vital is missing from it. Yes, I agree. That's exactly why I wrote the book. So could you talk about some of the elements of that poem and what you see as the limitations of our existing paradigm of social activism?
0: Sure. I'm going to quote Audre Lorde, who wrote very compellingly on something that she called the master's tools, which is a notion that when we're socialized into a particular system, that it's difficult to transform that system when the strategies that we employ are the very same ones that that system taught us. And so the the infamous quote from Audrey Lorde is, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And I think in part, although I very much recognize and support and celebrate the incredible gains toward liberation and human rights that social justice activists have accomplished in the last several hundred years, And I agree with you, Tony. I think there's something missing. And the signs for me that something is missing is that increasingly activists are burning out. It's an incredibly significant concern within movements, within communities, within social justice spaces, that people who commit their lives to making the world a better place, increasingly, I think, find that they are inadvertently putting their own bodies on the line, their own health, their own well-being, their own capacity for connection and for rest and renewal. And for me, that's a problem. And it suggests that one of the things that we're failing to do in the work of social justice is recognize that we are vulnerable, tender, and yet fierce and resilient embodied beings, that we have both capacities and limits, and that unless and until we listen to our bodies in terms of what they're telling us about our capacity, about our energy, about our resources, about our capacity for connection with ourselves and with other people, that until we do that, something's going to be missing from our movements, from our work, and that we will continue to chew up and burn out people whose commitment to changing the world is laudable and crucial. But also, I think there's this other piece beyond activist burnout that I hear a lot of people speaking to, and that is that they want to help change the world. They're committed, really deeply, deeply committed in their hearts in terms of changing some of the oppressive structures and the destructive patterns that they witness in the world and in their lives. But they don't know how because they experience activism and activists as something that occurs in this professionalized sphere outside of the context of their own daily lives. And so part of what I take up in this book is this notion of something that I call micro activism, which is that if we really look to how our own lives and our own bodies are being affected by the violent, oppressive, destructive, inhumane social systems that we see enacted in the world, that if we really wanna do something about that, part of what I think needs to happen is that we need to recognize the lived experience of our everyday lives. And by that, I mean going to the grocery store, getting our teeth cleaned at the dentist, driving down the road, having a conversation with our mother-in-law, that I believe that part of what immobilizes well-meaning good people in terms of not doing more to support positive change in the world is they don't feel as though they have a platform. And what I argue in this book is that we all have a platform. We need to expand and reconsider what a platform for activism actually can look like. And one of the things that I suggest in embodied activism is that that platform can in fact be our own embodied relationships with other people And with our environments, both the human made built environment, but the natural environment as well. We're always in interaction. We're always being affected. We're always shaping and being shaped by these, you know, millions of interactions on a day to day basis. And some of them support our well-being and the well-being of the people that we interact with. And some of those interactions don't. And I think we have a platform. And in fact, I'm going to argue that we have a set of strategies for transforming those everyday, small-scale interactions by making them more embodied and understanding how we can also make those interactions more
1: equitable. So one thing that really struck me in what you said is that, and I see this too, is this sense of activism as being something separate from us. Yes. And that we have to live up to in certain performative ways that are incredibly difficult these days because social activism at this point feels like war. Yes. And it's a war against a quote-unquote enemy that seems to be on another planet living Mm -hmm. in a a completely different reality and it's really it's really difficult to know how to engage with them because in a sense in order to accomplish change we have to work together to do this Mm -hmm. and so this seems like a task that is verging on impossibility if not actually impossible Uh
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. One of the things that I think feels increasingly true for many folks, particularly in the U.S., but I would argue in Canada as well. I'm Canadian and I, I live in Canada, but I see this happening here as well, that the ideological differences between people seem to be increasingly polarized and intractable. And yet, We have, talking about a master's tool, we have, I think, in our notions of what social justice is, inadvertently adopted this paradigm of a war, of battle, that the people who we believe are wrong about what the world should look like are our enemies, and that social justice is about waging a war on them and winning as if that somehow was going to make the world a better place. All it does is make the world a more violent place and further entrench the differences between us as human beings. So there's that piece. There's the way in which I think, not all, but I think many folks who want to change the world have unconsciously, unwittingly adopted this warlike stance you know, the war for human rights, the war on this, and I think that that's one of the things that needs to shift, and I think the other thing that needs to shift, and this is a little more difficult to articulate because I don't know that we have a a vocabulary for it or a very widely shared vocabulary for it, but let me do the best I can to see if I can't help describe it. I think that along with this sort of inherently violent paradigm of you know, social justice is a battle against the evil, you know, that exists in the world. But there's also this notion that what we need to do is somehow change people's minds, that it's an ideological battle. And I agree that there are significant, profound, important ideological differences between people today. And I think there's another avenue of relatedness that we're not paying attention to and that could be an incredible resource to us if we did. And that channel, that avenue, that alternative way of communicating and relating is not ideological, it's somatic. And by that, I mean, it focuses on how we feel in our bodies, when we're with someone who's different from us and how our bodies navigate the social differences between us in a way that actually, and the research in nonverbal communication supports this, that in fact, how we speak to one another on a body level actually carries more of the meaning of that interaction than the words that we say. So here we are focused on battle as a paradigm and language and ideas as the channel through which change occurs. And I'm gonna argue that we are not in a war and that the ways in which we engage with others that we identify or experience as different from us is actually something that can transform by paying attention. To how we relate to one another on a body level. And I think these are some of the key missing ingredients that you pointed to when you asked me to speak about this a
1: little bit. So it sounds like what you're saying is that we need to engage in a kind of relational dialogue with others from our own embodied perspective, as opposed to coming from our our heads, which are kind of siloed in within our bodies. Uh-huh. Exactly. And it's interesting that you presented this distinction of ideological versus somatic in there. Uh-huh. It's so easy to get caught up in playing the game that we see being played around us and falling into the trap of thinking we have to play the game the way the other side does it just because we happen to be focusing on them and the way they're doing things and forgetting that there are other ways of engaging, of seeing things and of responding.
0: Yes, we can choose different tools.
1: And as I was thinking about this and Audrey Lorde's master's tools uh, metaphor, it seems like a primary tool that also affects the masters just as it affects everybody else is the kind of unconscious egoic paradigm of separation mm-hmm. that underlies all of this all of these yes. issues
0: yes and i think you're right i think that that ideology that we are separate irrevocably different And it's our differences that matter more than our similarities. And that we've learned implicitly and explicitly to unconsciously value people or devalue people based on those salient differences. And that ideological stance, when it's taken up and when it takes root in social justice spaces means that we focus all of our attention on defeating an enemy and increasingly, I think, begin to fracture and become increasingly divisive within social justice spaces because we don't have the capacity to tolerate difference. And when those differences arise, and i'm not suggesting that they're not important differences particularly when we're interacting with someone who holds beliefs that are inherently dehumanizing to who we are and how we've been identified as a member of a social group but i think that that experience of encountering difference is something that requires us to have a greater capacity for Sensation, and I say sensation rather than emotion, but I'll get to the emotion piece in a bit. I think part of what our movements need and what we need as individuals, as we're engaging with people who are different from us, is a greater capacity to experience in our own bodies and witness in others the pain and distress of that difference. So let me just say a little bit more about what I mean by that. One of the things that I think can happen in social justice spaces within movements, but also just in everyday interactions with one another, is that when we encounter difference that we don't like or that we disagree with or we find problematic, something happens in our bodies that we may or may not be in touch with. I think many of us probably aren't because we're socialized not to pay very much attention to what's happening to us on a body level. But something happens in response to what we perceive as a threat, a threat to our own way of life, our threat to our own opinions and values. doesn't matter what we experience the threat as, but that when we experience threat, and particularly if we're primed to identify threat, rather than sources of support and nurturance. That when we have that experience of potential threat in an interaction with another individual or in the context of a group, our bodies respond by putting us on high alert. And if our capacity to tolerate and make space for that sensation in our bodies of, oh oh something's maybe not okay. You know, there could be something potentially dangerous or uncomfortable or problematic coming my way. That if we don't have an embodied capacity to hold that, we're going to lose our seats, we're going to lose our center, we're going to lose our ground. To put it bluntly, we're going to lose our sh and the interaction is going to go badly because we don't have that embodied capacity to recognize, acknowledge, and breathe through the distress that we naturally experience when we counter difference that feels potentially threatening. So for me, this capacity to feel into our bodies, it's something I call somatic bandwidth. And by that, I just mean the ability to be with a broad range of sensations and emotions as we're in engaged relationship with someone else, with our environments, that that somatic bandwidth, when it's not there, means that we're not able to navigate the differences and come to shared perspectives, shared values, similar needs. We never get there because our nervous systems have been hijacked
1: by the automatic response to threat. Yeah. That's such an important dynamic in our human lives. Yeah. And people who've experienced trauma in their lives are especially susceptible to getting hijacked in those ways.
0: And quite frankly, who hasn't? Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So here we all are, primed to detect threat, socialized to identify certain kinds of differences between us as problematic. And then we enter into these interactions with others completely unprepared to navigate them with a sense of humanity and dignity and self-worth and respect for the essential humanity of the other person. And the more of these unsuccessful interactions we have with people that we've identified as different from us, the cumulative effect of those relational ruptures begins to look and feel like scar tissue. So that we're actually not as available, as flexible, as adaptable, as mobile as we need to be in order to meet the next situation.
1: So that's a huge challenge (laughs) Mm -hmm. to uh, distinguish the possibilities that we can generate from a conscious Use of our creative imagination from our kind of default way of imagining the other.
0: Yes, yes. It's a lot of work, but I think it's not impossible work. We started this conversation with your use of that term impossible or potentially impossible, but I do, in fact, think it's quite possible. And the work needed to develop the capacity to meet difference in other human beings with a degree of spaciousness and equanimity and dignity is entirely possible. And I would argue that that work, that necessary work to be able to engage with others in this way is good for us. I think there are significant personal benefits to doing the kind of interrogation and cultivation of capacity that I'm describing.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I've actually spent much of my life doing that kind of work on myself because I felt like I needed it so desperately. I think a lot of people either don't realize that they need to do that work or they're, they don't want to do the work because whenever they get even remotely close to that part of themselves, they get scared away. Yes. How do you work with people to overcome those obstacles? Mm-hmm,
0: yeah. So I want to name another thing that you kind of alluded to, in addition to this piece of when people attempt to do the work to change how they interact with other people because they recognize that they have a, a pattern of really unsuccessful, unsatisfying, frustrating react- interactions with others, particularly across certain kinds of differences, that when people go, hmm, Maybe I need to do something different. One of the things for sure that comes up is their own history of trauma around that and people get scared, understandably. But I think the other thing that sometimes happens and we are maybe less conscious of this other piece, which is why should I do the work? I'm the one who's been harmed. I'm the one who's been marked and allocated a marginalized social identity or social identities, why should I do the work to change how these interactions are going? I think that's the responsibility of the other person. And so I want to address that as well. The focus for me of embodied activism and of the five strategies that I'm going to talk about in a bit is first and foremost designed as a form of self-empowerment. This is not something, even though part of where we're going with this is to recognize that our embodied relational interactions with one another need to shift in order to build a new world and a new way of being in the world. But these steps are first and foremost a process of what I might call healing. I tend not to use the word healing very much, but I'm using it particularly in this instance now because I connect it very much to some of the work that's being done right now in healing justice movements and the recognition that happens there that people with a history of marginalization and oppression and discrimination have been harmed, and that part of social justice is healing that harm, is addressing and recognizing and doing something to transform the harm that's been done. So each of these strategies are designed to do that as well as to help us shift how we relate to others so just very briefly the first thing that i often will recommend to someone who's interested in engaging in this process of change and expanded capacity around embodied activism is to recognize that their bodies have a story that We're used to sort of thinking about having a life story. We can, you know, somebody asks us, we can usually say, well, I was born here and I did this and I went to school there and then these five things happened and, you know, and, and here's where I am now. We've got what we might describe as a coherent narrative of our lives. But we're socialized, I think, many of us not to pay very much attention to the history of our bodily experiences. Like, were we ill? you know, do we have a particular relationship with our embodied experience? Did that change point in our lives? Maybe we the age of five, where we felt really alive and connected and free in our bodies. And, and did that change at some point? And what changed it? And how did it change? And how do we feel about how our bodies look and move? So I think that exploration of coming to really listen to What's happened for us in the context of our lives on a body level is a really important first step. For most folks, that will include a history of what I might describe as trauma. And for that reason, depending on the person, I will often recommend that this exploration is something that's done in the context of having a supportive resource, someone who is there as a mentor or a coach or a guide or done in community in the context of a group so that you've got support for that and resources available to you if you hit a piece of traumatic material that is actually not best for you to hold by yourself. So this piece around our body stories, coming to listen to our bodies and recognize the story of our body and what that narrative is doing to inform where we are in the present moment with ourselves, but also with other people. The second step is something that I often just describe as cultivating our sensuality. And even just using that word, sensuality, for lots of folks is quite provocative because we've come to associate sensual experience with sexual experience. And I think many of us have had experiences of feeling as though our sexuality is something that is private or needs to be, you know, siloed away in another area of our lives and isn't very seemly or acceptable for sort of public conversation. But I'm going to argue that our sensuality, and by that I mean our ability to feel inside our own bodies, our ability to feel our movement. And enjoy and take pleasure in our bodies moving, however they move. Not as with this notion that there are certain capacities for movement that are better than others. But just in the ways that our bodies can and do move, can we take pleasure in them? Remember a quote from a Buddhist monk once saying, enjoy your breath. And how different that notion of enjoying your breath is from learning how to breathe properly and correctly, for example, as a body practice, that lots of somatic practices talk about breathing, and here's how you can do it better, and here's how you can use your breath to, you know, regulate your nervous system. I'm going to argue, could we just enjoy our breath? Could we just take some pleasure from our own embodied capacity to feel things? But also within that larger umbrella of sensuality is the senses that we often use to navigate the world, which is our sight and our hearing and our smell and our taste and our sense of touch. Can we find ways to take pleasure in those as well? Because taken all together, our capacity to enjoy and experience and reclaim the sensations in our bodies, the sensation of movement, but also the sensory richness that's available to us outside of our bodies, in the world outside, that taken together, our lives get, our experience gets deeper, richer, clearer, more nuanced, more articulated, more specific, more creative. So that's the second one. The third one I've mentioned a little bit already, which is how important it is to notice what our nonverbal communication is conveying, what our body language is saying about who we are and how we're experiencing someone else, and to really start to unpack our nonverbal communication, most of which is automatic and largely unconscious, but how to begin to ask questions about how we're using our body language in our interactions with other people and ask questions about the ways in which how we use space, how we use touch, how we use eye contact, how we use posture and facial expressions and other kinds of gestures to convey implicit bias and to establish power dynamics in that relationship. There's a lot of literature A lot of really good research and practice done in this area, and I think it's hugely important for anyone wanting to do this work that time is spent and attention is focused on the ways in which our nonverbal communication perpetuates inequitable interactions and keeps unjust social systems in play from the ground up. The fourth strategy that I advocate for is reclaiming our body image. There's so much across culture and through history, so much damage done to our sense of ourselves through unfair, arbitrary, but strategic social norms of the body. How our bodies are supposed to look, how they're supposed to move, how they're supposed to behave. And I think unless we really have a look at how we've come to understand our own body image how we think others are reading us and our bodies but also how we read others and how we assess other people based on their body image that this is a huge territory that is worthy of of reclaiming and then just very briefly because I've been talking for a long time I just want to mention the fifth strategy and that is, something I call cultivating an intercorporeal ethos. And here's what I mean by that. I think one of the things that many of us fall into as an attitude around activism and social justice is that we feel this obligation to help other people. And I'm going to argue that there's a problem with that. And I'm going to share a quote by Lilla Watson, who says it better than I can. And you may have heard this before, but I think it's worth repeating. She says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And for me, what that does is it shifts my stance that I'm not doing social justice work. I'm not engaged in activism or embodied activism. I'm not writing books or teaching on this topic because I want to help other people. I'm doing this because I recognize that my own liberation is bound up in the liberation of other people and that the pain that my body is in as a result of living and breathing and working and interacting in an oppressive social system, the pain that my body is in is not unlike the pain that other bodies are in and vice versa. That I think it's crucial in doing this work from an embodied perspective that we be willing and able, even if only just a little bit, to practice something that I call Kinesthetic empathy. And that is some willingness to experience in my body, to try on, to take on, to take into my body the pain that other people are in, because I recognize that there are some crucial similarities in that pain. Even though the ways in which we have been wounded by oppressive social systems are diverse. We all know what it means to be in pain. And we all know what it means to be in pleasure and to be in joy and to feel free and to feel connected. And for me, that sense of intercorporeality, that means our bodies are connected. We're members of each other on a body level. That, that ethical stance, which means if your body's in pain, that affects me. For me, that's the last but really crucial strategy of embodied activism.
1: Well, thank you for laying all of that out. You did that really beautifully and very succinctly. And it sounds to me that what you're implying is that we can actually engage the other on this kind of sensual level. And when I say sensual, I'm not talking about rubbing our bodies together, but engaging with people through our other senses, through sight and hearing, and just being present in the space with them, and being yeah. and being in touch with our own embodied experience, and yeah. not and not getting lost in our head stories, but just being uh-huh. pre- being present and kind, of, and also being present with the trouble that we may still be uh, reacting to on various levels. In regard, uh-huh. in regard to the other, but, yeah. but, but still being willing to be present with them and open to, to seeing if anything different can emerge out of being willing to engage in a kind of sensual dialogue, let's say.
0: Yes, exactly. And so I, I think you said a couple of things there that are really important. One is the strategy of being connected to my own embodied experience when I'm in let's say a challenging or difficult interaction with you, that the strategy of being in my own body is not to somehow overcome the difficulty or to add something, you know, different, instead just focus let's just focus on how we're connected. Let's just focus on the empathy. No, no, we, we need to we need to be with and stay with the trouble. But I think we need to have some spaciousness so that we are bigger than the trouble that we are in, that we're bigger than the difficulty or the distress of the interaction that we might be in, and so that we convey to ourselves and to the other person that we're still in it. Yes, this is difficult. Yes, this is challenging. Yes, I just said something really stupid and you're calling me out on it. And, you know, I'm thrown off base and I don't know what's going on and I'm scared and I'm a little bit angry and you're clearly angry. And what are we doing about this? But rather than learn a strategy that prompts me to provide a formulaic apology, for example, would I instead just connect with my own sensing, breathing, alive, feeling body? and recognize that you are in your own sensing, breathing, feeling body and that we're here together in this moment in the trouble and could that body-to-body authentic presence give us something to support us in navigating the differences that we're struggling
1: Yes. And as you were saying that, I have this image of all of us Mm. as individuals on this planet, all in the trouble together. Yes.
0: We already are, but could we just
1: actually really be in it? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And allow (laughs) ourselves to really feel the embodied awareness of being in the trouble, but not just as our isolated selves, as we tend to relate to the world and everything around us in very personal ways, but recognizing and seeing that all of us, every one of us, including our quote unquote enemies, we're all in this together. We're all in this trouble together.
0: Yes, it's a collective trouble. The minute we begin to separate and isolate and disconnect and other, we're sunk.
1: Exactly. And almost all of the activism I see occurring in the world is coming from our isolated silos or our insulated choirs Mm -hmm. where there's no contact. There's no there's no dialogue going on. There's just an outward expression of rage and self-righteousness.
0: Yeah, it's just shouting.
1: Yeah. And. What's most tragic for me is that that seems to be enough for most people.
0: Oh, oh, righteous indignation is so satisfying. It feels so good after years and years and decades and, you know, feeling dismissed and ignored and overridden and punished to be able to find people who have experienced the same kind of bullshit for the same kind of reasons, and to get together and to join in a shared expression of righteous indignation, moral indignation, is crucial. We just need to not stop there. That needs to not be our strategy. Of course, it's an understandable, human, visceral response to injury. I get it. I get it. And I own it. I've been there myself. And part of the reason that I'm saying kind of tongue in cheek, it feels so good is because I know what that feels like in my own body. I know what it feels like to finally find a group of people who've been injured and unfairly treated in the same way that I have. And how wonderful it is to be able to direct some of my outrage collectively at someone else to finally have enough Collective strength to feel like I can fight back. Accept that. If that's all I do, if I stay there, if I don't use that collective echo chamber to help me settle and heal and feel validated and supported, but then go out in the world differently, if I just stay there and shout from where I am, I'm just going to perpetuate the same Divisiveness, we're already in the middle of. So, yeah, I get it. I get why they're shouting. I just desperately want for us to move beyond that and to understand why we need to.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we all do that. And we all experience the satisfaction from doing that. But as you so beautifully said, that is not a place to get stuck in, because not only does it not solve anything, but it actually perpetuates the trouble.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's not a strategy.
1: And in addition to that, it embodies the very qualities of the system we're trying to dismantle. And if we get trapped in it, not only does it perpetuate harm in the world, but it undermines ourselves and and destroys ourselves in the process.
0: Yeah, it's the master's
1: tool. Yeah. And it's so easy to lose sight of our original desired vision for a more beautiful and compassionate world when we're faced with the things that we're trying to overcome. We get lost in the other, in a sense.
0: Yes. Yeah, I think, and I say this with real compassion and from a place of personal understanding and personal experience, our bodies are in so much pain that I really understand why we would get lost in that pain and make that the focus of our social change efforts, but it doesn't work. The focus of our change needs to be the beautiful world we want to build. We need to rehearse the social order we want to bring into being.
1: Mm-hmm. Your book has a bunch of stories in it and interviews that you do with people. Are there any stories of people incorporating this kind of embodied awareness into their activism that you could share with us?
0: You're right. There are many of them in the book. And it's part of my commitment to acknowledging the value of story and narrative in our psychology, in our you know, our understanding of of what it means to be human. And the story that I, that I, I might share with you is not necessarily a story with a beginning, middle, and end, but an example. And you may have read in the book, I did an interview with three graduate students, just finished taking a master's degree in psychology, and they were fellow students. And as part of their required curriculum, in this psychology program, they had to take diversity and inclusion courses, multicultural competencies in psychology. I'm not quite sure what their particular course was called, but it's a really standard course or set of courses in any graduate psychology program. And these three students were in these courses and realizing that it was both information provision that felt completely intellectual and out of body And then as soon as students in the class began to engage with the substantive issues that some of this information was pointing to, pretty quickly shouting emerged, right? That people got in touch with the pain that they were in, understandably, but without any other tools, pretty understandably, but quickly escalated into here we are in the trouble together and we're just shouting at one another because things are not going well part of what these three students did because they were simultaneously learning about a body-focused strategy called focusing, which is a set of steps designed to help people feel into what's happening for them on a body level as a way of asking what's not quite right and what do I need? What would help shift this feeling of not quite right in my body. The heart of the story is that these students decided they took their own initiative and they began meeting together as a group and sharing with one another some of their painful experiences of oppression, of difference, of encountering difficulty in the world across social difference and You know, the struggles that they had in figuring out how to encounter other people across what felt like intractable social differences. And they shared these experiences, but they shared them in a way that was deeply connected to how they were feeling in their bodies. And the people in the group who were listening to those stories also had a commitment to being present in their own embodied experience While they were listening, and what they discovered through this process of meeting together on a regular basis and being embodied with one another as they were describing past experiences of injustice or social discord was that they came to feel as though they were in this work together. They had this really profound shift in how they understood what was happening for them in the world around social injustice. And one of the students described it really beautifully. He said, I feel as though I'm taking my colleagues with me, and that I'm holding their embodied experience inside of me. And that when I go out into the world, I'm not meeting these challenges or these difficult experiences of oppression or discrimination, I'm not meeting them by myself anymore. I actually have the lived experience of other people in their bodies with me inside. I'm not alone. And so for me, that story, that description is exactly what I mean by taking the time and the effort and putting in the work required to cultivate some spaciousness within ourselves, to not only be present to ourselves and to our own experience, but to allow the experience of other people inside us in a way that's affirming and nourishing and resourcing.
1: talking with Ray Johnson. They are the author of this book we've been talking about, Embodied Activism, Engaging the Body to Cultivate Liberation, Justice, and Authentic Connection. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour here on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. about how we come to know ourselves through our experience and engagement of others. Absolutely. Which is a really wonderful and fascinating way to see ourselves in the world. And of course, that includes everybody we encounter, including those that we dislike or disagree with.
0: Yes, including those who have harmed us.
1: Right, exactly.
0: We take all of that in. We are shaped by our engagements with other people. And even when that taking in of experience, that taking in of the other is not conscious, it shows up. It shows up in the conversations that we have with ourselves. It shows up in our internal conflicts that we have. Because the messages from the world about who we are and who we aren't, and who we should be, get inside us. You know, I, I don't use this as a metaphor lightly, and I'm very aware of, of the importance of using the term colonizing in a context that recognizes actual peoples in the world who are still in the experience of being colonized geographically and culturally and politically by another political power. But I do want to use this is a metaphor just in this example, the world colonizes us. The voices that have power, the perspectives, the gestures and looks that we get, the ways in which people turn away from us or don't respect our space, all of those messages of who we are and whether or not we are worthy of respect and agency and dignity all of those messages get in and part of the work of embodied activism and part of why i spend so much time and focus and attention on doing our own personal work is because i think unless we've done that process engaged that process of decolonizing our bodies and carefully examining and either integrating or refusing and resisting the messages that we have been told about who we are and what we deserve. Until we've done that process, all of our engagements with other people are going to be shaped by those colonizing influences, whether we know it or not or want it or not.
1: And that requires us to actually be willing to deeply look at those colonizing effects that we are receiving from the world around us. And that means consciously recognizing and accepting that those things are, we've already taken inside of us and they're having consequences. Yes. And it's only from that conscious recognition of that, that we can actually do the reflective work of reevaluating it and deciding whether... It's something that serves us and that we want to hold on to, or that we want to consciously either get rid of or rework in some kind of creative way.
0: Yes, exactly. And of course, you know, I've been talking mostly about the ways in which painful messages of not being valued wind up inside us in our bodies. But of course, we also take in from the world strategies around domination that we learn how to do that to other people and that's another incredibly important reason for doing the work of huh how have i how have i taken in this relational model of domination and subordination and how am i enacting that in my everyday life through my current relationships
1: and that's one of the most difficult things to honestly acknowledge and recognize within ourselves. Yeah. Especially considering that we we're all doing that. We've all learned those behaviors yeah. and those ways mm-hmm. of of reacting to the world or behave or being yeah, and behaving in the world and yet unconsciously, well, considering that it's unconscious, we just do it by default, yep. without yep. without realizing that we're doing it, without, mm-hmm. without realizing that we're actually causing and perpetuating harm to everyone around us, including the people that are, are most dear and precious to us. Absolutely. And to ourselves. And to
0: ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless and until someone does us the honor of calling us on it, it will be unconscious to us.
1: Right. And often when people call us on something, even somebody that's close to us, we can react very violently to Mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. So it's one of the reasons why the
0: examination of the ways in which we have adopted strategies of domination and punishment is work that I recommend not be done by yourself because it's so easy in that work to slip into self-blame and self-judgment and shame. Because who wants to be abusive? None of us want that. And yet this work requires that we come to acknowledge the ways in which we are. Not on purpose, but we still are. And so it's work that I think is often done best in the context of a group of people who have some shared experience of that or with a guide or a, a support person, just so that we don't wind up getting... Lost in the shame of recognizing our own learned abusiveness in oppressive social systems.
1: Yeah, shame is such a difficult emotion to deal with. And it's part of that somatic bandwidth that you referred to earlier that we really need to come to terms with.
0: Yes, absolutely. Shame is incredibly debilitating and it can shut down processes that we actually want to continue to explore. And so finding ways. To tolerate the sensation and acknowledge it, not dismiss it, acknowledge it, feel it, and be bigger than it.
1: So, another way of saying embodied activism is conscious activism, where we have done that deep inner reflective work to understand and recognize where we are coming from in terms of our traumas, our intersecting identities and our behaviors and doing it really honestly acknowledging all of the darkness and quote-unquote evil ways that we have embodied and have perpetrated on others unconsciously or just reactively yes yeah it's a deep and profound work and that is what i have felt has been profoundly missing from our social activism work in the world?
0: Yeah, so so far, it's not sufficiently recognized or integrated. And I think in some ways, it's because our social movements, not all of them, but many of them, I think, have also unconsciously adopted yet another set of master's tools, which is this sense of urgency and goal orientation. We don't have time to do the navel gazing. We've got work to do. (laughs) Right. And I, you know, I say that tongue in cheek because I think that there are, you know, leaders in movement work who would say something akin to that if you and I proposed how important it is to slow down and do the deep inner reflection on the ways in which we have been shaped by and are continuously implicated in the reproduction of oppressive social systems. I think it's crucial. I think there's no point in going forward toward any goal with any degree of urgency unless and until we can slow down and do this work because I think that's what makes the work different. I think that this is the way to not simply perpetuate these intractable intolerances of other human beings that that business as usual, social justice, can inadvertently, unintentionally contribute toward.
1: Yeah. The impulse to fight fire with fire. And to do it quickly because the house is on fire. And it is. And it is. And there's the uh, somatic bandwidth again Mm -hmm. to be present, to find a way to stay present in the trouble in the house while it's burning, knowing that if we take action too impulsively, too reactively, we could actually cause more problems, worse problems. Yeah. Do we use air or water on that fire?
0: Do we fan the flames or do we take the time to find a source of water and use that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. This has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I've I've so enjoyed your perspectives and the wisdom you bring to this.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure. I could talk about this all day. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking such good questions and for engaging in this conversation in a way that really really makes clear how much of what I've been talking about you're already doing.
1: For many, many years, I've been wanting to have this kind of a conversation with somebody. And until now, I have not really found anyone who has really thought these things through. I mean, even I hadn't really thought these things through. And I don't know if I could say it gives me hope Mm. for the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at least it gives me joy to know that To be reminded that we can at least enjoy this present moment, even inside the burning house?
0: It's all we have. It's all we have is the present moment in our bodies. And, you know, if we can find a way to honor that, to live that, we will change how we are in ourselves and in the world. And by extension, the people that we touch will change and we can co-create a bottom-up transformation of the world in which we live.
1: Yeah, another fleeting thought. (laughs) That's the only way to actually create change. We can't use a two-by-four and bang change over the head of other people
0: no, we don't want it. Why would we expect someone else to enjoy that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's so easy to forget that. Yeah. And yet that's largely the way we respond to the trouble that we see around us.
0: Yeah, yeah. And just to offer just a little bit of perhaps more hope and some more context, the work that I've been doing over the last 20 years or so has been profoundly shaped by the work Of others who have really understood the inextricable connection between social justice and embodiment. You and I, we talked about Audre Lorde and, you know, I quoted some folks and described some work that other folks were doing, but what I'm describing is by no means just an approach to social change that only I'm articulating. There's lots going on in the world. And the more I talk about this work, the more I meet people who are and have been doing really important transformational work, innovative work at this intersection of embodiment and somatics and social justice. So I've got some really good reason for optimism and hope because I think this is a change that's coming.
1: May it be so. Yeah,
0: exactly. May it be so.
1: So where could people find more information about your work and to connect with you if they're interested?
0: The best way is through my website. That's rayjohnsonsomatic.com. And that website will lead you to links to my published work. There's a contact form if you want to get in touch. There's a page with links to talks that I've given And so that's probably the best way for folks to learn a little bit more about my work. Um, I am a full-time academic. I'm a full-time faculty member at the California Institute for Integral Studies. I teach in a doctoral program in somatic psychology. So that's, that's my day job. But the rest of this work, and in particular, this work and my new book on embodied activism, is where I'm taking my scholarship and where I'm taking my personal commitment to change in the world. And I would be absolutely delighted to have conversations with folks or to speak to groups who want to learn more about what I'm doing and what others have been doing in this area.
1: And there's a beautiful quote from Martin Aylward.
0: Mm, Yes.
1: He says, embodied awareness is the way back home intimacy with where and how we are right now, with what is happening and how we are meeting it. My intention is to lead you into the heart of your life, inside your body where everything happens within a quality of listening rather than knowledge, a feeling rather than reaction. This whole book is just a beautiful re-perspective of what's possible and with that in mind, I think that it does give cause for some level, some degree of optimism. Yeah, I'm glad. That's why I wrote it. Well, again, Ray, thank you so much for being on the show and for your wonderful work.
0: Thank you so much. It was, it was my pleasure. I, I've loved talking with you.
1: And I've loved talking with you, too. And be well. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Ray Johnson. They are a social worker, Semitic movement therapist, and scholar activist working at the intersections of embodiment and social justice. Ray's approach to embodied activism has been shaped by decades of frontline work with street youth, women in addiction recovery, psychiatric survivors, and members of the queer community. They currently teach somatic psychology at the california institute of integral studies and they are the author of embodied social justice and the book we've been talking about embodied activism engaging the body to cultivate liberation justice and authentic connection And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.